You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we survey the Bible one book at a time. I'm Drew Kaiser, and with me is Andrew Kingsley, and we're in the middle of the book of John. Today is a special episode because we're closing up the public ministry of Jesus Christ, and next episode we'll be getting into the private ministry of Jesus, which is chapters 13 through 17. Um, This is a hard one to give a heading to because there are so many events contained in this. We have this uh, dinner with uh, Mary Martha Lazarus in Bethany. We have, of course, the triumphal entry. We have the Greeks that come to see Jesus and some very significant words that he has to say. So we're just going to outline it by the events themselves. And uh, you could think of it as maybe a tying up of loose ends of this uh, public ministry as Jesus kind of goes in uh, secret with his disciples just for a, a night and has a lot of private discourse with them prior to his trials or his passion as we have been calling it in the outline of the book proper uh, in order to stick with the letter P. But uh, anyway, uh, let's uh, delve into this and see that it begins, the setting is, verse 1, six days before the Passover. This is that then six days before, or not six days, but the Sabbath. (laughs) We, We tried to work on this before we hit record and still having trouble. But this is the Sabbath before Jesus' death. And a lot of people are surprised to get to John chapter 12 and find that they're in the last week of Jesus' life already. There's a lot more material, but John kind of zooms in at this point and slows down time because so much is compacted into these few days. But Jesus goes to Bethany, a familiar place to us by now, where Lazarus was, we were introduced to him last chapter, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and I think it's interesting that John is consistent with uh, Luke and the in the characteristics of the family of Martha, Lazarus, and Mary. Uh, Martha is serving, just as we see her doing at the end of Luke chapter 10. I think I've got that right. And uh, Lazarus is one of those reclining at the table. And then Mary does something interesting. She took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So she anoints his feet. And this is an incident very similar to one recorded in Luke chapter 7, but -hmm. it's not the same one. Uh, Right. There there are several differences between Mary and the unnamed woman of Luke chapter 7 and if we have time, I'd like to talk about those in the next part of the episode. But I did want to make that point because a lot of people ask. Now, what she was doing, she took this uh, pure nard. That's an expensive ointment imported from India. Yep. And, uh, you know, very fragrant, comes from a rare plant, so it's very expensive. It's about and it was, 300 days wages for a pound. Yeah. If you heard that anywhere, is that an accurate fact? Well, I, I think read that comes things. from what Judas says next. Okay. Because I read these things in the commentaries, and I'm thinking, okay, the next guy probably says it's worth something totally different. But. Well, that's according to what Judas, you know, Judas says it's worth 300 denarii, and a denarii yeah. is a day's wage, and, you know, that's about, on a Jewish calendar, about a year's worth of money. Yeah. But we don't know. Judas, 
do you get this feeling that maybe Judas can't be trusted? I'm just, you know, reading through this, there's some things that I, I'm not sure about this guy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We'll, I guess, we'll read it. Guess we'll, we'll see. Find out. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll see. I, I don't know. Um, but it was very expensive. Um, John says that much, right? Uh, verse 3, expensive ointment. Yeah. And uh, it's held in an alabaster flax, flask, according to Matthew, Matthew 26, 7. And alabaster is this white marble imported from West Egypt. And so she didn't and just uh, remove the stopper and drip a few drops on Jesus' feet. Mark tells us that she broke the flask. Yeah. And uh, that's consistent with a funeral ritual in which the uh, flask is often broken as the body is anointed with this kind of perfume. And it just is an action that says no expense has been spared in paying tribute to this person. And you'll notice in verse 7, Jesus is recognizing that she's preparing his body for burial ahead of his death, which is kind of a strange thing. But yeah. Judas does uh, speak up and protest, saying, uh, why wasn't this ointment sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? But John does something that's rare for him. He, he makes a little commentary on what was going on here, and he said that Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief... And having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Jesus says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Uh, The next thing, moving from that incident, we learned that there's a plot to kill Lazarus. And I won't say much about that, but he had attracted a lot of attention, both positive and negative, I mean, his presence was living testimony to the power of Jesus Christ and to his divinity. So, in verses 9 through 11, the chief priests are making plans to put Lazarus to death as well as Jesus. And then we get, in verse 12, to the triumphal entry. And uh, verse 12 says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This would have been on Sunday, six days prior to his death. And uh, they take these palm tree branches and they spread them out on the ground and, um, you know, start shouting, Hosanna, King of Israel. It looks very good at what they're doing, but we'll delve into that a little bit later and see that maybe their you know, thoughts were not exactly lined up with Jesus' thoughts. Uh, there has to be some explanation, because these same folks shouting Hosanna by the end of the week are going to be shouting Crucify Him yeah. at the end of the week. So uh, John continues saying that Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to them to to him. Um, so there were, as usual, mixed uh, reactions to this, and uh, the Pharisees, of course, are worried about the world having gone after him, as they put it. Yeah. Next, here's another little episode that that occurs. Some Greeks, that means Gentiles, 
are seeking Jesus. And Philip doesn't know what to do, and Andrew does. And again, we see some consistency in the characters of this. Um, there were some Greeks uh, at the feast who, who wanted to see Jesus, and they came to Philip. And Philip, verse 22 says, went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So you find Philip doing what he's always doing, trying to figure out what to do, being skeptical, not really knowing what step to take. And then you see Andrew doing what he always does, which is bringing the person, mm-hmm. bringing the problem or bringing the person to Jesus. Yeah. And what's really important is not these Greeks or Philip or Andrew, but the words that Jesus said to the Greeks. Uh, he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Still speaking to this mixed crowd now, he something magnificent happens. I guess you would call this the next uh, the next episode. His hour had come, and we'd been reading throughout the book of John that is, you know, at the wedding feast at Cana is the first time this language is used, and it says, "My hour has not yet come." Yeah. And in chapter seven, when his brothers are trying to encourage him to go down to Jerusalem, where things were a little dangerous for him, he's telling them, "My hour has not yet come." And now he's saying, my hour has come. In other words, it's getting close to my death. And he prays, Father, he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice comes from heaven. I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again. To our knowledge, this is the third time this kind of thing has happened. The first time was... You know, at Jesus' baptism, baptism, and the second time at the Transfiguration, and and then now, um, you know, he says this prayer, and I think it's interesting that the crowd, some of them thought it was thundering, and another thought an angel had spoken. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was, you know, some were standing far away, or mm-hmm. you know, some the voice was hard to understand, or it was so yeah. loud, maybe, or people weren't prepared to hear a supernatural voice. But uh, John points out that, you know, there was some disagreement over what had just happened. And Jesus says in verse 30 that the voice had come for their sake and not his own, which should be obvious if he was in constant communication with the Father. He continues talking about his crucifixion as he did to the Greeks, saying in verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And uh, so this is a very sobering passage that we're reading here, which is fitting seeing as how we're at the final hours of his ministry. Mm -hmm. I'm skipping some things, but I want to um, take a close look at the final words of this in verses 47 through 49 uh, as we close up the reading of this, uh, this part of John he, he says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, he had said something similar to that in chapter 3, verses 17 and following. 
And it doesn't mean that the world hasn't been judged, or the world hasn't been condemned. The idea behind that is that when Jesus arrived on the scene, the world was already condemned because of sin. So they need Jesus to step in and point his finger and say, you are condemned. The world was already condemned. His mission was not one of condemnation, but of salvation. But that doesn't mean that, the, you know, he's not preaching universalism. Mm-hmm. He's not saying that everybody is saved. We need him as a savior. And so he says in verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And that pretty much encapsulates John chapter 12. I cannot believe you summarized all that that quickly. (laughs) Well, I don't know how much (laughs) That's a lot of stuff. Yeah, well, I did it by skipping a lot of stuff. And uh, there's probably some stuff that I shouldn't have. But I, I figure... We'll get into some other things and get deeper into some things that we've skipped in the next oh, yeah. section. So we still got a lot of time to talk about these things. We're going to take a break and we'll come back and get a little deeper. Okay, we're back, and there's a lot of stuff to think about. The first thing is going to be this episode of the dinner at Bethany uh, with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And we mentioned a little bit in the first section the parallels that are in Mark and in Luke. There's one in Luke 7, and this, even though it's very similar, there are a lot of similarities. It's also very different for a lot of reasons. Uh, You can look back in Luke 7. If you're driving down the road listening, don't look back in Luke 7. But there's a scenario where Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house um, to eat. And while he's there, a woman comes in with an alabaster flask, which is also, well, it's not mentioned in John's account, but it's mentioned in Mark's account in Mark 14. Uh, So the same kind of Flask is mentioned, expensive ointment, wipe the feet. This is in Luke 7. Um, but then the problem there is the Pharisee says, well, hey, this is a sinful woman touching him. And if he was really a prophet, he would know. But you uh, can understand why people are confused because of the details you just mentioned. Right. Also, Luke does not have a story about Jesus being anointed by Mary in Bethany, but he has this story. Right. So Matthew, Mark, and John tell the story about Mary. Luke has a story about this unnamed woman. It's only natural to think that this is Luke's version of it. Yeah. And then uh, they're at si- there's a Simon at both places, too. Yeah. Because uh, we didn't mention this before in the reading, but there's a leper named Simon at the dinner in Bethany. Right. And there's a Pharisee named Simon who's hosting this dinner in Luke chapter mm-hmm. 7. So a lot of people get confused, myself included, uh, you know, when I'm trying to differentiate which one is the different one, which is not like the yeah. others. 
because Matthew, the, Mark, and Luke tell this. I mean, Matt, see, I did it just then. <laughs> yeah. Matthew, Mark, and John tell the story of Mary anointing Jesus' feet, and then Luke tells the story of another woman. Yeah, and there is certainly the possibility of you know one one gospel records some details, another records more. So I don't want to sound like I'm not thinking about the idea. Well. What if Matthew and Mark and John, you know, just mentioned some of these things, but they didn't mention the stuff that Luke mentioned? You know, maybe John didn't say Simon was a Pharisee, but he really was. You know, Luke's just adding to it. Well, even if you allow for some of that stuff, you still have a really big problem. Well, we just read in John, like we said, we're at the last week of Jesus' life. Luke chapter 7, we're still a long long way away mm-hmm. from Jesus' triumphal entry oh, to yeah. Jerusalem. We are... the timing. So that's the first problem, is the timing is not yeah, right. Yeah, the time in Jesus' ministry, and I know these things might not be necessarily in exact chronological order, but they're, they don't put items from the end of Jesus' life at the beginning of the section of Jesus' teachings. You know, it's not like you're going to get the Sermon on the Mount was really delivered, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, but we have it yeah, over here just because yeah. it fits better stylistically. There is a degree of uh, definitely... They're a little loose with the time, but not that loose. Yeah, not nearly that loose. So the biggest problem, for the biggest hurdle to jump for me is the fact that they are so different in terms of the time that they occur in Jesus' ministry. So it's going to be definitely a different occurrence. Um, but I've got this question, and this might be more trouble than it's worth to answer. Um, but in our account today, it says, verse 7, after she uh, pours the nard on him, she, Jesus says, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And then when you look at the account in Mark, it says that she broke it, like you mentioned. You know, she broke it and she poured it all on him. And he said, basically, that she is preparing me early for burial. So my question kind of is, which is it? Did she break it and pour it all on his feet, or did he say, "Hey, let her pour this on my feet and let her keep some of it to use it later when I'm going to be buried"? Does that make sense? I want to take the easy out on this and point to the footnote which is, leave her alone, she intended to keep it. Okay. And just uh, end it there. That's, that's good enough I, for me. I, I know what you're saying. I, keep could also mean guard. Um, there may have been some kind of sense in which she's you know, been treasuring this for a long time for she this special purpose. You know, that would be characteristic of Mary, I think, to, to hold on to this, knowing she, you know, had paid a close attention to what Jesus had been saying, yeah. more so than others, I believe, and uh, knew he was going to go to his death, and she lives right outside Jerusalem, she knows about the buzz, and yeah. so I think that I could go along with that footnote and, and read it that she did break it, and... You know, Judas wouldn't have reacted the way that he did if she had not used all of it on his feet. Yeah, that is true. Because he does say, why was it used 
or why was it not used to be sold? And then that brings me to my last question about this. Okay. Does it say anything about proper attitudes towards the poor and the amount of money you that are we getting spend away. on? You've gotten so far away from the differences <laughs> between. I don't know. Well, I'm just right along here. Well, I'm just giving you all my questions because I yeah. know we have so many things to cover. All these different. Um, yeah. Episodes. By the way, I forgot something I wanted to mention later on. I'll mention it when we get there. But um, about the poor, you will always have with you the attitude about the poor. Then maybe should we be using our money? And I know Judas's claim is way off base because of his mm-hmm. attitude. But does his attitude make the question any less relevant? And I. I mean, my answer to the question, I'm asking myself this question here. Jesus would have been worth a lot more than just, you know, if that's 300 days worth of work for that mm-hmm. ointment, he's worth a lot more than just not even a year's worth of work, you know. He's worth a lot more than that, you know. But maybe we should save this for apply, but I do think we need to nail some things down for think first before we can make the application. You know, for us, what is... You know, if we want to, what's the I question? Guess where should we allot money for different things? How much should uh-huh. we save to give to the poor? And I guess for us, we have an easy way out because we say, "Well, I just give it all to the church, and it's the church's job to uh, dish it out to some to the poor, some to the these ministries and that those ministries." So I guess maybe that's not the most relevant question for well, us. Well, you but. know how I we we use this proverb all the time. Um, I hear it in the secular world, and I hear it in the church. The poor you always have with you. And uh, we, we use it around here to talk about the fact that we're not going to end poverty, but we can use poverty as an opportunity for kindness. Yeah. Uh, the poor you always have with you. You know, there's some folks that always seem to be in poverty. We've, we've noticed this here. We've you know, try to try to help folks, and then they're back the next month. You try to help them, they're back the next month. Mm-hmm. And they never can seem to dig out of the hole. And that's not really the context in which Jesus spoke this, but that's the way we've used this proverb a lot of times, is just to say, you know, you, poverty is just a problem that's going to plague humanity until Christ comes back. Yeah. Um, now, it might have a little to do with what he's saying, is that, you know, Judas... Your your idea is not as good as her idea because she's taking an opportunity that's once in a lifetime, whereas yeah. you're talking about an opportunity that'll be here tomorrow, the next day, the next day, and the next day. Okay, that's the kind um, of answer I'm looking for, I think. But in context, John has already told us that that money would have never gotten to the poor. True. He so Jesus is kind of just ending this whole quibble and getting us back on focus of what it's important, which is he's approaching his death. And maybe we should take a cue from that. Maybe I shouldn't be, if he wasn't so concerned about it, and neither was John, maybe I shouldn't be so concerned. Well, I just, think Jesus has proven on other occasions that he cares about the poor. Yeah. And I, I don't think you were saying that he didn't care about the poor. I think you were asking, you know, is that an interpretation some people use on this? Or yeah, could they get away with that? Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm trying to think of it. From the other side, if somebody were trying to, you know, attack the beliefs of Christianity and say, well, look, here, he doesn't even care about poor people. Oh, if yeah. he really cared about poor people, he would have given that 
you know, he would have sold the ointment and given it to poor people. Well, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of one of those comments that he makes to the would-be disciple who asked for permission to bury his father when yeah. Jesus called him and he said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. You've, yeah. You follow me. Yeah. And it's like, Jesus doesn't care about funerals. Jesus doesn't want us to have funerals. Yeah. Uh, but they're, you know, that person, some have called his, you know, commitment into question, because that's the context of the end of John, uh, Luke 9. Yeah. And we're calling Judas's commitment to the poor into question, which is the context of John 12. So the and focus shouldn't so be I, Jesus's I, I, attitude on the poor here. It should be more directed on Judas's, I guess, I, I think this is addressing Judas more than the problem of poverty. Yeah. I don't think so. I think you're right. I'm wondering because, you know, this is stuff for that paper I'm working on for school. Oh, is this why we're doing this? <laughs> yeah. Because I'm wondering why I had all these great points about how this about is giving. different from Luke 7. Oh, well, and you, you can, start getting into, sorry. like, how much money is this worth? I forgot. What, I'm trying to fly through these so we can you get... You are moving fast, my friend. Bring us... Well, what other differences I think people, do you have? Well, I think people would like to... You know, I think I, this is a difference in and of itself. Okay, so from Luke seven, right? Because well, yeah, no that was one thing of, I was going to point out is yeah. the antagonist in Luke seven was Simon the Pharisee. Correct. And even though we have a Simon in John twelve and of the other passages, he's not mentioned in John twelve. Other, it is said by John that there were other people there. Uh, verse nine says that a large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there. Um, they came to see Lazarus, you know, risen from the dead and all this stuff. But uh, other passages say that Simon the leper was there. Yeah. So, but in Luke 7, the antagonist is Simon the Pharisee. There's a bad attitude about this woman anointing Jesus' feet with her, with this um, ointment and wiping it with her hair. He seemed that she was acting, his problem wasn't the money, but her unseemly conduct, Mm -hmm. and her lifestyle choices. Here, the antagonist is Judas Iscariot, and his problem is he would like to steal that money. And so there are two different antagonists with two different angles on it. Two different women, too, because the woman is not named in Luke 7, and she's called a sinful woman. And, of course, we have a name in John 12 and the others, it's Mary, whom we're familiar with from because of John chapter 11 and Luke 10, I think it is, uh, and other passages. This is Jesus' friend. Yeah. And, uh, and, and let me just throw this other thing in. Because, you know, everybody gets the Marys mixed up because Jesus' mother was Mary. And then you have this Mary, who's the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Then, of course, you have Mary Magdalene. And they get the Marys mixed up, and they also get Mary Magdalene mixed up with the sinful woman of Luke chapter 7. Because right. in Luke, Luke 7, you have this incident with the, the woman anointing Jesus' feet with her hair. And this is getting really off subject, but it was something that I wanted to do. Because <laughs> sometimes I want to I get us off subject. Yeah. Uh, Luke 7, you know, you have the, the sinful woman. We assume she was maybe a prostitute or something like that, or a woman mm-hmm. who had been caught in adultery in some way. And at the very beginning of Luke 8, we're introduced to Mary Magdalene. But they're not the same person. 
And people have, throughout history have called Mary Magdalene a prostitute because her story just happened to follow the story of the sinful woman. Mm-hmm. But they're described in such different ways. I mean, in Luke 7, she's a sinful woman. Mary Magdalene is described as a very wealthy woman upon whom uh, Jesus depended for financial needs. And uh, she had had seven demons cast out of her. That, you know, was a traumatic past. But she's certainly not described in terms of infidelity or sinfulness in any way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we go back to what you initially said. The timeline is different. The antagonists are different. The hosts are different. The women who do this are different. Yeah. Somebody says, well, it sure does look similar because they're both anointing his feet. You know how often that happened? That, that was a frequent occurrence. I mean, even Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples in the next chapter. True. So it was a common courtesy when people have been traveling to you walk in the house, take care of their for feet. A dinner, especially for a dinner. Yeah, I'm sure they would want to make sure because you're laying down. You know when it says Lazarus reclined at table with him, you know they're really reclining. Maybe you've seen some of those paintings and stuff. Not the one you know where they're all sitting at the long table, but the ones where they're kind of lean back on the right arm. You know, right? Like laying back. I mean, it's not like Da Vinci's painting. No. Where they're sitting upright in chairs yeah. at a tall table. Yeah. I mean, you want to be washed up for that if you've been walking out. You yeah. know, walking around out in the dirt and the mud and everything. So just like today you tell your kids to go inside, wash their hands, wash their face before you eat. Mm-hmm. You know. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah, depending on what they've been doing. Depending on how hungry I am. Yeah. Uh, you know, in Common Luke 7 why I say that. whenever Jesus takes Simon the Pharisee to task he says... Uh, you you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You know, so it seemed like it was something that had been missing in that dinner, is that Simon had not, you know, provided him with water for his feet. Yeah. Uh, by the way, this hair thing is interesting, don't you think? Yeah. Um, I, I looked that up because, uh, you know, it just seems like unusual behavior. Why don't you and just grab a towel? Yeah, maybe use uh, which I think that's normally what was used was a towel. You know, yeah. Jesus takes up a towel and a wash basin in John thirteen. Mm-hmm. But um, you know what? You know this was something very unusual and striking that she was doing because Jewish women were not to unbind and loosen their hair in the presence of outsiders. That kind of thing could be considered an indecent act, and uh, you know, Linsky mentions. Uh, the boast of a Jewish woman that he had read one time who said that the beams of her house had never seen her hair. So she had never, like, I don't know how you do that, but uh, so Mary takes her honor, basically, and uses it as a towel for somebody's feet. And it reminds me of what Paul is saying about a woman's hair in 1 Corinthians 11. It's her honor. Yeah, that's what I was about you know, to say. She's, she's taking what is you know, considered something precious and holy and hidden, and she's using it as a towel. Not only that, but she's taking her most prized possession and breaking it to anoint his feet. There's a lot going on there. So that's a very, a lot deeper show of appreciation, I guess, than you just read without knowing what's going on with the hair or really the 
the uh, perfume. Well, that's what we're all about here on the 66 Podcast. Yeah. Yeah, that's why we... Digging Deeper is the name of this section. Uh, the next okay. thing, though, uh, let's move forward to... Uh, well, just for the sake of uh, being thorough, verses 9 to 11, you can see just how far the Jewish leaders are following here. They want to kill Jesus, now they want to kill Lazarus too. They know that's not right to do. They want to do it anyway. They want to abuse the law for their own purposes. Um, It's a very dramatic fall for these people. And you can see what's behind the statements that Jesus makes. Like, you know, in vain do they worship me. Uh, Their heart is far from me. All these kinds of statements. Because that's exactly who these people were. And that brings us to the triumphal entry. Uh, A few interesting things going on here. They have branches of palm trees. Why mention the palm trees? Um, well, I read that in, in those parts around Jerusalem, the palm trees were pretty rare. Uh, what, what city, is it Jericho that's known as the city of palm trees? Mm-hmm. Uh, so... <laughs> I think so. I'm, no, not, I'm not sure. I'm nervous. I think it's Jericho, um, but you know, it was hard to get a hold of some palm leaves, and that's part of it. But also, these palm leaves were a sign of Jewish nationalism, and this goes all the way back to the Maccabean revolt, which is not recorded in the Old or New Testaments. It happened during the intertestamental time period, but it was a very important Jewish event. Uh, celebrated uh, by Hanukkah. And uh, it was a point at which they were able to gain independence temporarily from these greater empires that were surrounding them. At the time of the Battle of the Maccabees, it was the Seleucids, a Greek kingdom, who had control over Judea. And the Maccabees, this is a family of Jewish people, they, they led a revolt that was successful in they maintained control. They maintained their independence as a as a small kingdom, not a vassal kingdom, but a standing alone kingdom for about a hundred years. Uh, that ended with uh, the Romans and Herod the Great took over, and this is where they are now under Roman control. But the palm tree was a symbol of the Maccabean revolt and Jewish independence and nationalism in general. So him riding in on a donkey and there putting their coats and palm trees down in front of him is a sign that they had something in mind for him, but not exactly what he had in mind. Right. And somebody would say, well, he's riding in like Sancho Paza on this donkey, and uh, (laughs) they got the wrong idea. It's another cultural cue. Uh, Because of Don Quixote, we think of this as a silly thing to ride on a donkey. Yeah. But, um, you know, back then it was uh, only nobility and royalty rode on a donkey, not to mention a colt that had never been ridden before. Uh, this was a exactly. sacred animal. Mm-hmm. You know, David rode donkeys. Uh, yeah, exactly. A princely beast of burden to their minds. And that's exactly that word princely there. I mean, you already touched on this, but that's exactly what they're looking for. You know, they said, uh, Blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They're, again, we've already read where they tried to make him king after he fed them, uh, the crowds, that is. Mm-hmm. And then now here, yeah. they're still thinking along the wrong kind of lines. 
You can see that in verse 34. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So they still, I mean, they're this show of the palm trees and the saying Hosanna, which is save now, save us. Um, it means save us from Rome. Rome, not sin. Yeah, so they're still missing, everybody's still missing the point here. People are getting close, but, you know, Mary, we just saw Mary choosing the better portion right there in chapter 12. Based on everything else, I see no reason to believe that she knew. I mean, she's doing good. She's doing the right thing there by, you know, using what she had to glorify Jesus. But I don't think she knew either that Jesus really was going to be raised from the dead. And all this was going to happen so that everybody could be forgiven of their sins and have eternal life in heaven. But he had been telling them this all along. Right. We hear what we want to hear. That is exactly right. That's a good application. Um, and I guess we can get down now to this next episode, unless you've got something else from Mm-mm. 12 to 19. Here's something. I don't know how much you want to comment on this, but there is a old tradition in Eusebius. Uh, historian, he mentions uh, something about these Greeks coming to him. And he says that these Greeks had been, according to Eusebius, had been sent by a Syrian king, Edessa, with basically an invitation for Jesus to come over and live um, in his kingdom, assuring him, you know, uh, peace, safety. Uh, The quote here says, a hearty and princely welcome. Uh, So they're you know, giving him an opportunity. That's just kind of interesting thing, I think, considering the context of what's going on, because he's about to be killed. That is very... I've never heard that. That is very interesting. And it makes sense, because these Greeks seem to be special. Yeah. And they're not called just Gentiles. They seem to be from Greece. Mm-hmm. So... And Andrew and Philip... You know, they come, like, as an official envoy. They kind of have that appearance to them. Yeah. For Philip to take them so seriously and be, like, so apoplectic over their arrival. And what do do I do with these guys? He's nervous. You know, and it's not like the Syrophoenician woman who, you know, it's not good to take what is holy and throw it to the dogs. You know, they're not talking to him that way. And then you consider his answer... Jesus' answer too, he's talking about dying. He says, you know, my hour has come. Ah, if wheat, yeah. you know, and then he talks about the wheat has to die to bear fruit. And then he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me where I am there, my servant. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So he's talking about. This isn't going to be left. Yeah. The seed of who I am that you're interested in is going to be yeah. transformed by the time you get back home. Yeah. So and that I learned something. I I, I mean, mean of a, course, we don't know for sure if that that's who these guys are, but it's a but very there's interesting no theory to rule it out. I mean, because yeah. this doesn't just come out of thin air; it comes from Eusebius, who's, I mean, as far as fourth I know, century. He's, he's pretty reliable. I wouldn't say it's just throw it out, but I wouldn't say maybe take it to the bank either. But it definitely the context makes it really interesting to consider. Mm-hmm. It really does. 
Um, but obviously Jesus chooses to do exactly what he was sent here to do, uh, as we know, uh, of course. Um, next question. Verse 31. Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. There's two different ways you can read this. The ruler of the world will be cast out, talking about, well, I know the passages where Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air, or the ruler of this world. The God ruler, of this world, yeah. 1 Corinthians 4, 4. There's ruler of the present age, isn't that in there? Mm-hmm, something like that. Um, so are we talking about Satan being defeated with Jesus dying on the cross and being raised, or... The other side of this could be we're talking about the real ruler of the world, which of course would be Jesus, uh, who is they're trying to make the king here, but obviously we know he really is the king, just not in that exact same way. Are we talking about that king being cast out in terms of um, the Jews casting him out, not accepting him, casting him out and killing him, basically? So... Which side of this coin do we think were... I mean, both of them apply, but what did he... What did he mean, you think? I, I believe, because of other passages of Scripture, that the ruler here is Satan, the devil. Because mm-hmm. I believe that the overall picture of the Bible teaches us that the devil was defeated on the cross. Uh, the clearest example I can think of is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 which says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, as crucifixion, yeah. he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So through death, he destroyed the one with the power of death, that is, the devil. Also, Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's a phrase that Paul used a lot of times for the demonic world. Yeah. And put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So those are two passages I think about in connection to this one. Yeah. To show that, you know, the devil was defeated a long time ago by uh, Christ on the cross. And he is weakened quite a bit from from that day forward. Um, and that makes sense with the next few verses too because he talks about being lifted up from the earth and we know from verse 33 that he's talking about being crucified because John says he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. And I, and I know Peter tells us to be vigilant, be sober, your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour um, and so, and we, and I believe the devil as a personal being, and I believe that we do need to be careful about him. But I don't believe he works today in the same manner that he worked uh, during other times, like the days of Job or David or Judas, even who were personally affronted. Jesus personally affronted by the devil. I don't think we have to worry about him taking advantage of us in that particular way. I think we worry more about his influence over us. Because he was defeated, personally defeated. And I believe that the passage of Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, refers to what happened here on the cross whenever the devil, who's symbolized as a dragon in that passage, was thrown into a pit and chained. And uh, 
you know, I think he has a limited influence under the control of God. And, uh, you know, the whole Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it routine is not really the actual way things work today. Yeah. There are a lot, there's a lot of mystery to the devil's behavior and what he's allowed to do and what he can't do. But I don't think he's standing on tiptoe outside our windows looking for ways to, you know, make us slip up and take advantage of us. I don't think he has that ability to do do those kinds of things because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross to give us freedom from that and to make it possible for us to win with Christ, that is, to have eternal life instead of the only choice being death, which is what it was before the cross. Yeah. Final thing here I have to offer. Now, I know we've been talking about this for a very long time. The final thing I have to offer is verse 35 and 36. Again, how many episodes have we had on John where we have talked about this light and dark imagery? Because there it is again in verses 35 and 36. The light is among you for a little while while you walk, or walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. So again, mm-hmm. we have more. So in those first that first episode that we talked about some themes in John and we mentioned the light and the darkness, Yeah, we were not just saying that because it sounded good. I mean, right. we have more than, more episodes we have said something about the light and darkness that we have not. Mm-hmm. So it is and definitely it, And it's consistent theme. in John's epistles as well, which is mm-hmm. even more condensed uh, in there as well. Well, we better stop so we'll have time for our lessons there's a lot of practical applications to handle as well so we'll take another break and be back with you in just a minute Andrew, let's get down to the brass tacks. Let's, let's make this practical. Let's let's make it worthwhile. Let's let's get right. some lessons in here. Let's find something for a daily walk with Jesus Christ. Let's let's really make it real. Let's repeat, repeat the same thing. Oh, over I and said that one already. I'm not good at that. I you know. Yeah. But any anyway, uh, I'm not good with synonyms. I'm good with that because when you get like halfway done with your sermon and you've only been talking for five minutes, you've got to just say the same thing over and over again, just different words, but you're still saying Are you talking about me? No, I'm talking about me. You're saying you. Yeah, I'm saying me. So when I, the word to use, the the pronoun to use there is when I. Oh, did I say you? Yeah, you said when you. say I, yeah. Sounds like you're cutting me down, which I probably deserve. No, no. I'm saying it's good that you don't... You're not good at repeating the same thing in different phrases. Because I am. Because I do it all the time. We so do not have time to to do what we're doing right now. True. So let's move forward. All right. There are some great lessons to, to take away from this. And the first one that I think has numerous examples to develop it is that it's possible to get Jesus wrong. Start with Judas... What was he thinking? Being a thief. Being the person to betray Jesus. You know, we'll see this more and more and probably have more to talk about. But, you know, there there's one theory about Judas that 
he was he was disappointed in Jesus, mm-hmm. and maybe trying to force his hand by delivering him over to the Romans. That's the best possible light that we could cast him in. And then Martha, uh, you know, she thought that you know being busy and serving was the way to approach Jesus. Uh, the Jews had him all wrong. Uh, the Pharisees had him all wrong. Um, you know, you had people calling him king, but not the kind of king that he was. So just because you appreciate Jesus or you have strong feelings or passions about Jesus does not mean that you know Jesus. It's possible to get him wrong. Okay? Number two, it is possible to get Jesus right and still be lost. And this is a couple of verses that are really important that I skipped over in the reading. Uh, verses 42 and 43. And you remember how I said that John doesn't comment a whole lot, but he made that comment about Judas? This is yeah. another case where he steps into the narrative and makes a comment. And I think if there's anything that makes John angrier, it's hypocrisy and people who you know, don't act according to their true faith. Because yeah. he says in verse 42 that, you know, many of the authorities believed in him. He's talking about the Sanhedrin here, the court that sent Jesus to the cross. Many of them believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So these people had the right idea about Jesus, but they were still lost yeah, because they were afraid to confess him. And that's why confession is so important. It's important to be someone who is known to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Any Anything on I, that? You know, I think verses 42 and 43 are very powerful. They, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God, so they weren't willing to to say something that would challenge their uh, standing in the community, even though it was right. You wonder if everybody who actually believed in Jesus had spoken up alongside of Joseph and Nicodemus, you know. You wonder if he would have even been crucified. But then if he hadn't been crucified, what would happen to us? Yeah. Number three, Jesus is our king. And we need to start looking at him that way. There's a lot of ways that we describe him, a lot of ways in which we think of him, but rarely do we think of him as a powerful king. And, um, you know, what happens when we dumb Christianity down to uh, a religion without a king at its head is we get what uh, one guy calls Dallas Willard. He calls this barcode Christianity which I thought was a pretty interesting way. It's abundance without obedience. You know, you just scan it through. Okay, I obeyed the gospel. Now give me my forgiveness of sins and I can go on my way without feeling guilty. And what Jesus is really asking for is full surrender. Everything. Give me give me all. In fact, you even lose your identity. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. So uh, that's what it means to call Jesus king. These people were laying palm trees down in front of him and coats in front of him and saying uh, he, is, he is the king, uh, saying, Hosanna, save us. But they weren't ready to give their lives for him. And he asked nothing less of us as well. But uh, Christianity has turned into something 
a lot different than that. All right. Next. Ready? I'm ready. Number four, suffering has a purpose. This brings us to my favorite verse of the chapter, verse 24. What He says like three proverbial things to these Greeks. And the first thing mm-hmm. that he says, and I liked your explanation in the last part of the episode on, on why maybe he was saying this, but taken just all by itself, it's just really powerful. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, like a seed, mm-hmm. falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. There's so much packed into that. You know, there's the prediction of his crucifixion and resurrection. Yeah. But there is also a prediction of our own death, burial, and resurrection. And along with that, hope and suffering. Mm-hmm. Not even not just hope and suffering, like, oh, I can get out of this, but purpose in suffering, transformation in suffering. Through this pain and agony, you're better. You bear fruit at the end that you weren't bearing prior to your planting and disintegration. Yeah. Um, one of the things, one of the reasons I'll admit that I like this is uh, Dostoevsky put this in the preface of his novel, The Brothers Karamazov, which is my favorite book. And the book is full of people suffering and going through this, uh, you know, existential crisis. And, you know, there's some of them that come out better than others, but they're all going through this this process where, you know, Life doesn't turn out the way that they thought it would, and they they get into this terrible situation. And some of them, the ones that look to God, emerge from that better in the end, and uh, are bearing fruit, as Jesus put it. So, I love that verse, and I think it, if we would think about suffering that way, we would have a better time. It would be painful. This doesn't take away all the pain, doesn't take away all the scars, but it makes suffering meaningful. Yeah. Um, and then in verses 31 through 33, this is the last lesson I wanted to share. Uh, Jesus gives two reasons for his crucifixion that I think are important for us to underline in our minds. Uh, he says, "Now the judgment of now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out?" So first of all, he uh, died to cast out the ruler of this world. Mm-hmm. which we talked about at length in the yeah. last section. And the second reason, though, was when he's lifted up to the earth to draw all people to himself. So he wasn't just casting out somebody. He was drawing somebody else in. He was getting rid of the devil and attracting people through, yeah. the, through the crucifixion, which, of course, involves our salvation and all the things that go along with that. Yeah. What do you think about this? When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. I mean, I'm just—I've thought about this a few times and thinking, you know, within this grand scheme, and everybody has all these kinds of questions. But in the grand scheme of everything, you know, why did Jesus have to die to, you know, to reach everybody or to make? You know, and I know, I know the old law with the the sacrifices and how sin was repaid, but you know, I'm just wondering, how, what is it about this him being raised up that will draw all people to him? 
you know, are there other things that he could have done to draw? Uh, he did draw a lot of people to him by healing, by forgiving sins of some people. But I think people are obviously more interested in getting food, getting their loved ones healed from their sickness, maybe bringing them back from the dead. So those are the kinds of thing I, things that I think of. Well, if I want to draw people to um, our congregation, Asheville Road, how are we going to draw people in? Well, by showing them the love of Christ, right? So we're going to go out, we'll, we'll do something in the community, we'll host a clothing drive, we'll feed people, we'll help them pay their bills, we'll do all this stuff. But when it gets down to it, I think what's interesting is the crucifixion is the thing that is really going to draw all people. You know, and, and we talk about how do we show the love of Christ to everybody. Well, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you to love one another as I have loved you. So the thing, the most powerful thing about the gospel really is that Jesus would leave what we read in John 1, that he would leave where he was to go to where he went to go through what he went through. You know, and yeah. I, I think there's so much involved in that when you start to study and find what Christ did exactly by, by giving his life for all of us. There is no greater display of love than he could have shown, greater than we can really, and this is, gets said all the time, but and so it kind of loses its weight, but in all trueness, in all truth, we cannot understand how much love he has for us because we can't comprehend what he left in order to come do what he did. You know? Yeah. I, I think you answered a question when you said, you know, people are attracted to love. Yeah. And according to John and, of course, the other inspired writers of the Bible, the way God chose to show his love for us is through the cross. All those other things, the healings and all those you know things were, were good and were fine and did show love to a degree, but not to the degree of the cross. And uh, John said this in 1 John 4, 9 and 10, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. So, yeah, I think you're right that, you know, the attracting thing is love and yeah. sacrifice and service, which is something we should remember. We're not going to impress people into the gospel. We're not going to, you know, I understand the need of, of arguing truth and, and all that, but what really attracts people is this love of God that we are now to show, yeah. even as he did. And that's a great place to end the podcast today and put a bookend on the second major section of the book, The Public Ministry of Jesus Christ. Next week, we are looking forward to getting into the private ministry. In the meantime, while you're waiting on the next episode to come out, check us out online at the66.net. Twitter handle is the66podcast. Email us, akingsley at arcoc.com or dkaiser at arcoc.com. And uh, we'd love to get in touch with you and connect and uh, hear, hear what you think about the program. If you've got time 
and you haven't done so already, please go to the iTunes page and uh, write us a little review. You know, tell us what you think. Uh, Even if it's negative, it helps us uh, get found out there as people are searching around for Bible study to listen to through podcasting. Um, So we thank you so much for listening to us and look forward to being with you next time when we get into John chapter 13.